amazing. Hey, we are very blessed this morning to welcome up Reverend Fiona Blair, all the way our Associate Minister from uh, Rabina Campus. Uh, we, we are blessed by the message she's going to bring, and can we just uh, give a very, very, very warm welcome to her? Thank you, David. Thank you so much, and good morning, everybody. Um, it is a real privilege for me to be here uh, this morning and to bring a message to you. Um, as David said, my name is Fiona Blair. I'm one of the team over at Rabina. I haven't been here that long. I actually commenced a placement here at New Life, Rabina, on the 21st of February this year. So it's all new what's going on here. It's, it's new for me, um, but I'm delighted to be here and to be sharing the word with you this morning. Uh, might I just continue in our worship with a word of prayer as we enter the word this morning? God, we do just thank you that you're already here. We do just thank you, Lord God, that, um, that you draw us near to you, and we want to draw near to you in that process, Lord God. We want to participate and respond to your love this morning. God, we just want to know your presence. We want to be attentive to it. We want it to be apparent and tangible to us in this time we have of opening up your word. So God, we give ourselves in this time over to you, but we invite you in once again. We say, come Holy Spirit. May we truly see the good things that you have for us through your word, Lord, and may my words, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord God, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Friends, this is part of our, this is the fourth week of our Crucial Conversations series. Uh, I heard David mention that last week, Scott spoke to us about stewardship, and this week's conversation is it's quite a big conversation, really. Um, it's titled, Life, When Does It Start and How Should It End? You can all go, huh, <laughs> because it's a big topic for us to discuss together. It's a big part of our, it's a big conversation for us. But you would know that crucial conversations, our desire is that we would bring together the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. And that's our sincere hope and prayer, that this is not necessarily the first word on this topic and it's definitely not the last word but rather it's how we're going to walk through together this topic and what rises to the surface in our cultural moment so life when does it start and how should it end it's going to raise for us questions or it's intended to raise for us questions and even the painful dilemmas around abortion and um, and voluntary assisted dying so I would be delighted for you to participate wherever you're at in that conversation today. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe you're quite young or maybe you're quite old. Uh, maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're quite new to faith. Maybe you have somehow constructed a complete edifice of teaching on this subject. But my conviction is that having this conversation is actually really, really important and that we're going to seek to have it the right way. It won't be easy and you'll probably go away today going, yeah, but what about this and what about that and what about this and what about that? I'm not going to get to cover all of it, um, but I just pray and hope that you'll go with me on a journey as we see what the Lord unfolds. So I'm going to start with a story. Story is always a good place to start. So back in late September 2005, you're going to have to cast your mind back, you may not have even been born, um, but late September 2005, my Nana's health took a turn for the worst. She was um, moved from a medium care part of a nursing home into a palliative hospice care ward. From what I can remember, these occasional mini strokes um, suddenly became for her quite frequent seizures. 
They were debilitating and distressing for her. My mum and I would visit Nana each day. She was actually very, my nan was very confused, of course, about what was happening to her, but she was in a lot of pain as well and she was quite afraid. Um, other family and friends would, of course, visit, but for three and a half weeks, mum and I, both of us or one of us, would be there with nan throughout the day. Georgia is my youngest child and she was only a few months old at this time and so she came with me to hospital each and every day. And despite remembering the bleeping of the technology, the blipping of lights, the fluorescent environment that we're in and that slightly unpleasant smell of cleaning products, the three of us had some really special times with Nan. They were hard though. The nursing staff had to think very creatively as to how they might distract Nan from the pain that she's experienced and how we might attend to her at every part of the journey that she was on. When she passed away, it wasn't exactly peaceful, but she was heavily medicated to assist with her pain and distress. But again, the three of us were there with Nan. Georgie just sort of propped up at the end of the bed, holding Nan's hand, being with her, being with her as she came face to face with death. And, you know, I'm just wondering, uh, have you ever thought about how you'd like to die? You probably haven't. Not many of us do, really. I think we have a society that avoids a lot of these types of thoughts or conversations. But um, the country and Western music legend Kenny Rogers in his song The Gambler says this. He says, the best that you could hope for is to die in your sleep. Well... Friends from the research, actually, it says that most of us won't get to die in our sleep. Most of us will die from either failed cardiac pulmonary resuscitation or will die in an ICU ward surrounded by technology. Friends, as a minister, there's been so many heartbreaking, gut-wrenching times that I've been called to hospital bedsides. I've been called into the stories of families' grief and loss, often through the most terrible circumstances whether that be through suicide or motor vehicle accidents or other things. But when my nana died, it was the first time I had really come to stare at death and it was really personal. You also have stories. You also have stories like mine because we are all touched by these realities. Let me rewind that story that began, that I started to tell the story of 2005. Let me rewind that a few months to April 2005. I was 28 weeks pregnant with Georgia. And after the regular checkup I had at 28 weeks of my obstetrician, I was sent off to have an ultrasound because the baby's heartbeat was irregular and that was something to investigate further. The scan led to some difficult news because it showed three particular areas of concern. There was a heart murmur, there was an echogenic bowel, which means that part of her bowel was um, lit up, like it had a, a, a solid uh, function to it, and that she was considered to be of low birth weight. Echogenic bowel on its own is a soft marker for cystic fibrosis, and all three are markers for Down syndrome. Further tests on my husband and I reeled out cystic fibrosis, but the likelihood of Downs was high. Receiving that news was a shock. It caused us to ask a lot of questions and asked us to consider things, consider things far-reaching about what it was to be parents that we never had to consider up until that point with our previous two children. 
Friends, at 28 weeks gestation, <coughs> there was no mention in that conversation when I was in hospital. There was no mention about um, termination or abortion. But up to one in three Australian women, it's thought, will have a termination at some stage in their life. We don't have precise data, that's why it says up to one in three, but we do know that there are around 80,000 abortions each year. That's 1,500 per week in Australia. So who is it that's having abortions? Well, you might be led to think that it is mostly uh, younger teenage women, but it's not. It's primarily women in the ages of 20 to 24, and then the second greatest category is women in their ages of 30 to 40. <coughs> then followed by teenagers. Many, many people are affected. Many men and women are affected by this. Yet I find it striking that in 20 years of ministry, seven of those in ordained ministry can't say that I've had one parishioner come and speak to me about it. It's a conversation that is significantly suppressed, culturally and in our community more broadly and also in the church. And when it is spoken about, it's often spoken about in harsh or judgmental rhetoric, even by well-meaning Christians. Friends, abortions are more common than a hernia, varicose veins, or any ENT procedure. Yet there is such silence about it. There is such silence. And sometimes I think that we as Christians can actually not help the situation uh, by some of our strong-held views that would not allow a person who has experienced abortion to possibly open up and share about their pain or about their decision or their guilt or their shame. I believe that it's a conversation that we need to be having and we need to have it with tears and tenderness in our eyes. We must recognise and empathise with the agonising complexity of this subject, of this conversation. And we must recognise that there's a range of emotions around this issue. And not least because if the statistics are true, then there are men and women and couples in this room who have already experienced this or will in the future. I hope to just open some questions for us today. Um, but my emphasis is not on really having answers to those questions or really had the time or space now to thoroughly uh, uh, un unpack those questions, but actually to help us move into how we might respond. So, but my first big questions for this morning are this. When does li human life begin and when is there a person? When does human life begin? Well, that's a pretty, bi that's a biological question. Um, and the only answer is that human life begins at conception because we would all agree that what is there at conception is alive and that it has human DNA. And I believe that you would struggle to find any biological textbook that says otherwise. However, the controversial question, or the bigger question maybe, the question that is philosophical, ethical and theological, is when is there a person? And there are wide-ranging views here, and they're all quite complex and nuanced. Yes, we can agree that human life begins at conception, but not everybody would agree that personhood does. Uh, Peter Singer is an Australian-born ethical and political philosopher, and he has a fairly strong view about when personhood is defined. He would say that um, the worth of a human life is dependent on the adequate functioning of the cerebral cortex, that a human being does not, who does not have a fully functioning cortex, including a fetus, 
does not have, could not be regarded as having the right to life to the same value as a person with a fully functioning cortex. Further to establishing personhood, one side of the debate would also say that, that for women, that they have certain rights over their body, over their body integrity, over their bodily autonomy, and all that flows from what it is to bring a child into the world. And these rights include the right to end the life of an unborn child. I was wondering if you'd have a look on the screen with me for a moment. This is um, a series of pictures of some ultrascan images. And as I said, we know that what is in the womb is alive and that it's human. Um, but these images show us some different things. Uh, Okay, I'm going to have to get my lefts and rights right. <laughs> so I'm going to go this way. <laughs> Top left corner, um, it's what you look like when you're born. Uh, the next one along here, top middle, uh, this is what you look like at 20 weeks. And then over here in the right-hand corner is what you look like at about 13 weeks. Bottom left, down here, this is six weeks. In the middle here behind me is three weeks. And this one here is three days. question I have for you as you hold that image in your mind, the question will be on the screen, then we'll go back to the images. As we trace back our personal history into our mother's womb, is there a point at which you can confidently say, that is not me? Why don't we have a look at that again? Next slide. As we trace back our personal history into our mother's womb, is there any point at which we can confidently say, that is not me? Even though you might struggle to think how at three weeks or even three days, that's not you, I truly believe that God thinks it is you. In scripture, we get uh, a beautiful picture of how the narrative of the Bible talks about who we are, who God is, and what the Bible says about this topic. And so I'd like to just read, for you, read to you from Psalm 139. The words will be behind me on the screen. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. I just pause there for a moment. We have already spoken this morning about prayer and knowing God and being able to bring what's on our heart to God. I'm just wondering if you've ever been in a situation where life has been so complex, something has been so tricky, so difficult for you that you've not really even known how to put it into words. This is a beautiful verse for you to draw on because it says that before even a word is on my tongue, the Lord knows it completely. There's something about coming to God with the things that are deep in our heart that we don't always have to have the words to explain it because he knows it already in its fullness. Isn't that a delight? I go on uh, reading from, we're now up to verse uh, 5. You hem me in, behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too scary and wonderful for me. It is so high that I can't attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The light, the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. 
These scriptures tell us that God has this incredible creative activity that actually commences uh, from the time that we come to be in that womb. That God is intimately involved in this hidden, marvellous and mysterious process of our development. This means that our worth and our value and our dignity, it's intrinsic. It's not because we've done something or we've become something. It's actually intrinsic because it lies in how God has created us and knows us and remembers us and is calling us to himself. God saw you at those six stages and he knew you and he was calling you into existence. God created you to be complex. God created you to be complex through that process and even now as a, in, in adulthood. He created you to actually reflect the complexity of God himself in that we have a physical, a psychological, a relational, an emotional, a spiritual, all those elements of ourselves reflect the complex nature of who God is. And there is no place in the cosmos that the psalmist can evade God's presence. Not even if the psalmist traces his life back into the mysterious origins of the womb. So the psalmist is able to reflect on his past, you search me. His present, you know when I sit and when I rise. And his future, your hand will guide me. Beautiful verses. Let me continue to read on from verses 19 to 22. Sorry, from verses 13 to 16. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was in being made in secret, intrinsically woven, intricately woven, sorry, in the depths of the earth. My eye, your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them yet existed. In the Hebrew language, the word womb is actually particularly significant and has a lot of spiritual significance to it. It actually is a word that's derived from the same word as compassion. So compassion and womb have the same root part of that word. In biblical thinking, the womb is a really special place. It's a sacred place. It's a place of safety, security, and compassion. It is where God, God's guiding hand is at work. It's where he is calling, where his voice is in that unique place of existence and relationship with him. Other images might come to mind as God the potter, God the artist. But sadly, as we consider those statistics once again, as we might understand them to be true in our society, most dangerous place for you as an unborn baby, the place where your life is most likely to be extinguished is in your mother's womb. But you know what's wonderful? You know what's absolutely amazingly wonderful? What is wonderful is that God himself became a fetus. God turned himself into a newborn, into, into those pictures of those little cells that you saw on the screen. You know, scientifically, Jesus had to have looked exactly the same. Scientifically, Jesus was God in the, womb, in the womb of Mary when he was um, at the beginnings of his existence. Jesus was a fetus. He was with us in the darkness of our womb as he was himself one in the womb. From the same beginnings as you or I, Jesus fully entered into our human experience. From the same beginnings as you and I. And he is totally and emotionally and convincingly and overwhelmingly involved in all of the joys and all of the agonies of life. 
Now we've part of this important part of this topic is how we and bear in mind something that a lot of things that I've read or things that I've listened to refer to as hard cases. But friends, you know what? Hard cases, hard cases are actually real people. They might they might be named hard cases in a textbook, but these really really exist. About ten percent. Um, of, of people who come and, and, and have a termination of their pregnancy have been abused, have been raped. Maybe they're a mother whose life is, is, is significantly at risk. Maybe from something like an ectopic pregnancy. Possibly malformation or significant uh, problems that are going on with the baby. This does constitute 10% of those who, who um, seek to have an abortion. Importantly, whether we're talking about hard cases, or anybody for that matter, we never ever judge. We never judge if a person has felt that there's no other option. We never judge, ever, if there is a person or a woman who's felt that she had no other option. And friends, outside, you know, in the world that we live, so many, most, I would say, women do feel as though that they were left with no other option. Um, I have a, another, I have, and a daughter other than Georgia, and her name is Hannah. And uh, Hannah is a uni student. She's in her second year. She's studying law and anthropology at Macquarie University. And um, when the United States Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs versus Jackson that there is no constitutional right to an abortion anymore, that was overturning the Roe versus Wade, abortion, she said, became a frenetic topic of conversation at uni, particularly, well, essentially among her non-Christian friends. She said to me, Mum, it was like a wave of fear came over my classmates. She said, abortion to them is not taken lightly, but understand, Mum, that abortion happens when a series of things go wrong for these people. A series of things go wrong. And they feel that they can't raise a child on their own. And more, Mum, they don't have a safe place or safe people that they can go to, talk about it, to be supported, to receive advice other than termination. This actually really broke my heart. Because I know that pregnancy carries with it enormous burdens. I know that raising a child is hard, but I had to wonder what would make it possible to have an un unexpected baby? What would make it possible to have an unexpected baby? And how do we respond when we encounter someone who shares about their situation or about the conflict that they're feeling over a decision to either keep or terminate a child? How would we respond? Let me unpack this a little bit. I just want to say again that I think that it's never okay for Christians to say that something's wrong. Never okay to, something is, to say that something is wrong without immediately saying, here is a better way. Here is a better way. I think so often Christians are, are misheard or misunderstood um, or maybe guilty of actually not being well represented in the public sphere. Because to actually not go on to say what the better way is, what the good news is, is actually to like, you know, just not represent Christ in that moment. I believe that unless we're at the forefront of providing practical, practical support for unplanned pregnancies and its implications, practical support for the costs of raising a child with significant impairment, unless we attend to desperate women in dire straits, unless we have people who are willing to have the conversation, 
with young women and men who come from honour and shame cultures and environments, unless we are prepared to be there in the terrible situations that women teenagers find themselves in, then our commitment, our God-ordained commitment to the sanctity of life is at great risk of being flaky and suspect. So what is the better way? What is the better way? I wonder if you just imagine with me for a minute. Imagine if the next church that New Life planted had a crisis pregnancy clinic as part of its ministry. Imagine if there were people here, even from this congregation, that were moved to think, yeah, this is something that I can be a part of. I could volunteer for something like that. I could volunteer to help be there for a young woman needing a safe place and a safe person to speak to. I can be there to support someone who's actually gone through an abortion and seek to journey with them and companion with them through what the implications of that decision are. What it would be like for us to provide practical support for women who decide to keep children and need financial assistance, need help with housing and just the day-to-day expenses of what it is to have a child, practical things. I wonder if you'd be moved to get involved. I wonder if that could indeed help shape and inform our discernment as to how we go and plant more churches. I also wonder about things like how we become more serious about adoption. How do we support people, married or single, to adopt children? And how do we continue to celebrate birth, whether that's planned or unplanned? And how we celebrate people who've actually had to go through some courageous hard times in coming to make their own decision. This type of, this way of compassion and this way of creativity around these really difficult and complex situations still also apply for us as we look at end of life. End of life. And as we look at the sort of the second part or the closing part of our conversation this morning, it's about how should life end? You would be aware that there is some uh, new legislation in Australia that will take effect on the 1st of January around what is called voluntary assisted dying. And the legislation says that voluntary assisted dying gives people who are suffering and dying and those who meet eligibility criteria the option of requesting medical assistance to end their lives. That's how um, the legislation reads. By voluntary, we mean that it is, it is with their consent, it's free of coercion, and that they have capacity to make that decision. Assisted, meaning that they have access to a substance to legally end their life and a practitioner is there to administrate it. And by dying, the word is defined as intention is to end the life of the person. You may not have thought about this. You may not have needed to. Or maybe the legislation and the changes have brought some concern or some confusion. Maybe you have someone, a loved one, who is at their end of life now um, and that this is causing some considerable stress or distress for you. Maybe you're, you're someone who believes that voluntary assisted dying will have a massive impact on our healthcare. Maybe you work in healthcare. Maybe you work in our social services or in aged care. And maybe you have some concerns about where this legislation might be heading us. Um, one concerning direction it could head in is that countries like Holland um, have now almost um, eradicated the need for hospice type of care because um, people take the voluntary assisted dying option. They've also almost completely eradicated Down syndrome as well through termination of a child. Maybe you're like Andrew Denton, the Australian famous producer, presenter, comedian, who speaks very um, vocally about his view on this 
as someone who has had to watch a loved one die in a very traumatic way. But friends, the synod that we are a part of in the Uniting Church, it has provided um, a position on this, very, on this very issue. And the synod's position is that when it comes to the Uniting Church aid care services, hospices and hospitals, where voluntary assisted dying will become legislation on the 1st of January, a synod is not participating. What does that mean? That means that they will continue to uphold any person's desire to seek information and to be companion through this process, but, but as their own organisation or institutional part of the church, they've declined that they will conscientiously object. He says this, As a church, we believe in the God-given dignity and worth of every human life. We are committed to all that Jesus began to do and teach, taken from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 by working towards a society characterised by love, compassion, justice, inclusion and reconciliation so that all people at every stage of life can experience life in all its fullness. We seek to witness to God's good gift of creation and the intrinsic worth and dignity of all people in every circumstance that is grounded in a reality that is untouched by the circumstances of our lives or death. This is a quote uh, that our synod has provided goes on to say, we believe that although the end of life can be challenging and distressing, it can also be a time of powerful hope and renewal. So some of the big questions that arise for us here is just simply what is the Christian thinking around death? The Synod has affirmed for us that the Christian faith is one that is life-affirming. It's life-affirming. This means that all of life, no matter if we suffer and die, that it all matters to God and it is all of worth to God, that there is no person that has not been created and loved by God and that God calls all his creation good, that all human life is made in God's image and it's called to reflect his personhood. Ultimately, as Christians, we seek to witness to the good news that God is with us, especially as we come to Christmas. We remember that Emmanuel, God with us, and that God is with us in every circumstance that the presence of God in Jesus Christ made known through the Holy Spirit is the primary source of our hope, of our strength, and of our power in times of weakness. What about suffering? Such a big question. Such a big question. I think we've had conversations around suffering uh, even last year. But why do we suffer? Where is God in our suffering? These are some of the questions that my nan would ask. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were indeed words of Jesus. And the psalmist would say, how long, Lord, how long will you forget about me? These are profound concepts and questions with no neat, simple answers. But Jesus, in the Passion narrative, is deeply aware of the suffering ahead of him. He cries out to God, remove this cup from me. This cry is followed by a commitment to follow God's will in his life. So how do we respond to this challenging question? How do we respond in this conversation? What is God's way? What is the better way? Well, I think that this is God's way, and that God's way is that to witness suffering in another person is to call us to stand in community. It's a call for us to be there. That's how we respond. We respond as a strong community standing together, determined to be there. Suffering is not a question that actually needs an answer or a problem that needs a solution. It's mystery that demands a presence. 
uh, Cecily Saunders is a lady who was the inventor, essentially, of palliative care. She says this, you matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life. You matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life. Friends, Jesus was a dying man. So in a way, knowing that presence, knowing that there is nothing that we can go through in life that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has not already experienced. As I said earlier, he was with us in the darkness of the womb, and he is with us in the darkness of the tomb. All this just points to another truth that scripture so beautifully talks about, and that we, we are fragile. We are fragile clay jars. And we can say with scripture that the light of Christ shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so therefore we are called to engage. We are called to engage in society, in our cultural moment around this difficult and complex and painful stuff. Life, when it begins and how does it end. We are called to engage in it for Christ. Wonderfully, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this, We are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his poem. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So friends, putting every day that we work and serve into God's hands, we will discover that he is there. He is there going before us, preparing us, giving us opportunities indeed a good work that he has prepared for us to do. Going back to my story, just to finish that off for you. I remember so clearly that night when my husband and I prayed together after we'd left the hospital, praying over our unborn child. We were in shock. We hadn't actually talked very much. We'd just come home and attended to the other two kids and handed over from grandparents and so on and so forth. But that night, it was like prayer came very easily. So I think just sometimes, you know, that prayer is the only thing that you can do. And we said this, we said, Lord, you already know this little person so well. You love this little one so much. Would you help us to become more like you? And would you give us what we need each day to trust you with all our heart? It was a tough few weeks um, when Georgia was born. She was, uh, because of the complications they thought that would exist, she was born by cesarean section and um, she was whisked away for some tests and all sorts of other things that they do. Uh, there was actually um, some transport ready to take her to Westmead had she needed that. And uh, they were able to conclude that she was actually a perfectly per- perfect little person. Uh, not a sign of any of the concerns that they had. Unexplained how those things resolved unexplained to this day um, what was mysteriously going on in that place where even doctors with the best kinds of technology couldn't particularly be sure. So that is a great um, moment of rejoicing for us when, when, when she came. But friends, I just want you to be reminded that that's not always the outcome and that that decision to trust was actually the decision that we still make every day knowing not necessarily what lies around the corner but knowing that God does. We know that there is no human situation pain, there's no action we can take or not take, there is no particular suffering that's beyond the reach of the love of God. 
And when we experience those things, we are indeed res- we are witnessing to the resurrection and the new life that emerges out of some of life's deepest experiences, experiences of despair and hopelessness and pain. Remember, friends, today that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And also remember this, that humanity isn't divided into the guilty and uh, the innocent. It's not how we work it here. It's not how Jesus talks about life in all its fullness. I'm guilty. We are all guilty. Rather, the dividing line is forgiven and unforgiven. Jesus gave his life that we could be forgiven. In Christ, we find a new beginning. By God's grace, painful experiences can be transformed slowly and miraculously, redeemed by God's power, that they may even be an incredible source of help and healing for others. So I'm just wondering, where have you been aware of God's presence today? Where have you noticed yourself? Where have you found yourself in God's presence? Maybe you found yourself at the feet of the cross. Maybe you found yourself just in the arms of your loving creator. Maybe you've just known that that quickening in your heart that God is near to you, reassuring you, bringing his peace into your heart. But maybe that you're here and maybe you're experiencing that kind of presence of God, that kind of knowing something of God for the first time. Like maybe you've longed to know God, maybe you've longed to experience his presence. But maybe you've just, even in this moment, as we've been worshipping and listening and having this conversation, that you've come to know it in a real way. I know that that's how I came to faith. I know that I was sitting in a little United Church, uh, listening to something I don't remember what was even being spoken about. But I certainly was aware that God was so present to me. So if, there, if that is you, I just wondered if you would be really brave and, and let me know so that we can enjoy this moment of praying and celebrating God being so near. Is that anybody? Is that anybody today? Will we rejoice at how God has been near to all of us? We give thanks and we give praise for his beautiful presence. And so as we come to worship again and as this time is going to be open for ministry, I want to give you these words of invitation. As we're singing, if there's anything that you'd like prayer for, if there's any if there's any way that we can join with you in lament or in hope or in seeking forgiveness or celebrating life, if there's anything, any way that we can come alongside you with anything that's stirred in you today that you'd like prayer for, we're going to be doing that down the front here in a moment. But let me give you this invitation. These are the words of Jesus and it says this, come to me. All you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's continue in worship.